You're listening to audio from Redemption Church of Houston. We are a people who believe that Jesus has invited everyone into his radically inclusive, world-altering way of love. That means that when we gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or in homes throughout the week, you are welcome here. Regardless of your social status, gender, race, sexual orientation, or politics, we want you to fully and actually join, grow, worship, and serve with us. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, Jesus invites you into his radical love just the way you are. And so do we. Good morning, Redemption. Um, yeah, happy like last Sunday of Zag being the lead pastor here. Everybody's really excited, right? Um, I mean, I'm, I'm teasing. So, can, uh, which like even that joke um, I can make in part because uh, I'm kind of a jerk. So, so here, here's what I mean by that. Um, the thing for better or worse, that I think my parents did best in me is build like a sense of self-confidence. Like there's just like a sense of, I don't know, you can't do that, Uh, let me do it, I'll figure it out and I'll do it better than you. Um, And like, I think a bunch of people look at me and they're like, ah, there's a dude with no insecurities. I I mean, y'all have heard me preach more. uh, You've heard me preach enough to know that that's not the case. Um, but one of the reasons you know that that's not the case is because preaching is one of the places where my insecurities come to the front in ways that basically no other area of life has ever brought out my insecurities. Here's what I mean by that. Um, I grew up, I was always uh, the most intense kid on my soccer teams. I, I was not necessarily the best, but I was always the captain because I was always going to be the most intense and I was always going to yell at everyone else on the team when I knew that they were doing things wrong. It was just like, I'm going to just be a little general out there and tell everyone what to do. I wasn't even like a center, central midfielder. I was like on the wing, like, which is kind of hard to see where everybody else is, but I'm still like yelling all the time. Um, that was me. So, so I didn't have uh, I don't know, a healthy sense of insecurity about um, maybe, Zach, you don't know how to play uh, the positions better than all of your teammates. Um, but, but, but like I've grown. Well, maybe I haven't. But, but here's what preaching has done. So over the last nine and a half years, as um, Kim and I decided to start Redemption in January of 2013, it's been nine and a half years. Um, even the couple of years before that, I was preaching every week at a couple of nursing homes. And in that 11 or 12 years that I've been preaching close to every week, Um, my insecurities have been stirred more than just about any other endeavor in my life. As an adult, as a child, like no matter what, the thing that has stirred more insecurity for me than anything has been preaching week after week after week. Now, that's not because I'm overly concerned about being funny. Um, It's not because I'm overly concerned about being right. It's not, it's not those sorts of things. I know lots of people um, get a lot of stage fright. It just, the stage fright has never bothered me because I just don't care what y'all think. And, and I mean that in the, in the most loving way. But, but here's where my insecurities uh, have, have really weighed on me over all the years. It's, it's the weeks where I'm deeply aware of my own shortcomings, 
Where like I've, I've had just like a really hard week and I've been like a complete jerk to my wife or something. And then I'm like supposed to be up here and I'm like, hey everybody, I'm the lead pastor of Redemption Church. Don't you want to be just like me? Or like those weeks where I'm just like wrapped up with um, greed or distraction or whatever else. And then I'm like, hey, Jesus loves poor people in, in this area of Houston. Maybe we should hear that uh, much more severely than we do. Like my, my, my insecurity has been stirred in so many weeks as a preacher because I've felt impure. I've felt unworthy. I've felt hypocritical. I've felt like I just cannot be enough. Now, the, the thing about this insecurity for me is it was really... Um, potent. It was really sometimes almost crippling in the very early days of preaching. Um, the, the way I started preaching every week at a nursing home is I was, I was doing some hospice ministry. I was in seminary. I was writing some code part-time to pay for everything. Um, and I decided, hey, I need to like actually put what I'm learning in my seminary classes into practice. And I found this hospice organization that was just taking volunteers to go and meet some old people, get to know them, spend some time with them. And so I started like serving on this hospice group, just like befriending 80 and 90 year old folks, mostly, although there were some young folks too, and that was uh, devastating. But I spent time with these old folks, just getting to know them. And they're like, what are you doing here? I'm like, I don't know, trying to make a friend. Yeah, but what do you like? And then, you know, we'd talk about seminary and we'd talk about all these things. And somehow, one of these turned into um, like me preaching at this nursing home. Now, when, when I say I was preaching at this nursing home every week, and then I say, actually, I was preaching at two nursing homes every week because it quickly morphed from one to two, like you're going to get the wrong idea in your mind. Like it's, it's not an auditorium like this. I'm not a, up on a stage. Like I'm at a, at a table with like um, five people with dementia sitting around me um, trying to listen to my very long, complex sermons. And sometimes like screaming at me and like, like all, all the realities of hospice patients who are in um, these, these kinds of settings. Um, but I remember pretty early on, at least in the first year, like several weeks in, like you go and you have like this sermon and you're like, that was fantastic. And you're like, you come back the next week and nobody remembers anything. And like that stirred a little bit of insecurity because you're like, wait, what am I doing? But ex except that wasn't insecurity so much. That was, hey, I'm not very good at this thing. I need to get better. And that was great. Like, I liked that. Give me something to get better at. I can get better at that. That, that, that never ate at me. It never gnawed at me. It never like convinced me that I shouldn't do this. But then, then there were some weeks where I was like struggling. I was struggling with my faith. I was struggling with my rage. I was struggling with like my mental health in some ways. I was struggling in like just, just as a human. And then I would show up on these Friday afternoons to preach at this nursing home and I would sit there and I would feel like I am the person for better or worse, and this week it seems like worse, but I am the person appointed to tell all these people about Jesus. Not that they've never heard, but some of them have completely forgotten to remind these people about Jesus, to remind them of the scriptures, to remind them of God's great love, to like try to share something spiritual with them. This is my job, and I am woefully underqualified for this. My prayer life has been awful this week, my sincerity has been awful. My hypocrisy has been off the charts and just have this like crippling almost anxiety of, Lord, I can't do this. Lord, I can't go in there. God, I, I cannot with a straight face go in and do this for these people, not because of you, but because of me. 
And I'd have these weeks, not every week, but every now and then, when it was a particularly bad week, I would have a week like this. And in the early years of redemption, every now and then, I would have a week like this. And I've been thinking a lot. Ah, I've been thinking a lot, and that's going to make me cry. Um, here, here's, uh, can, I, can I just do one aside? Like, I'm trying really hard not to be emotional this morning because uh, I'm scared of emotions, like most American men. Um, <laughs> ah, okay. Uh, but really, my goal in this morning is I want to worship, I want to serve, I want to serve you all well, and not just reminisce. But I've been doing a whole lot of reminiscing um, over the past couple of weeks, and particularly this week. And I've been thinking about, hey, what's my last sermon going to be about? And I've thought about, like, what, what am I most proud of at Redemption? Like, what's been the best part of all these years? What do I hope happens for Redemption in the coming years when I'm just a member and I'm down there instead of up here? Um, there's lots that I'm proud of, and so much of it comes back to the idea of grace. I think we become a community of grace. I think we give each other better than we deserve. I think we really like lead with grace. I think we have some humility. I think we don't fight about stupid things. Like I think we are actually a community that's formed by grace. But as I've thought about like what am I most proud of and what am I most thankful for, very surprisingly, one of the things that I'm like pretty strongly thankful for is this profound, almost crippling sense of insecurity that I often had in the early days of preaching. Let me tell you why. It'd be stupid if I'd never told you why. We're just like, okay, turn to Acts, and that was the end of the story. Um, uh, Here's why. Um, Something about that sense of complete inadequacy was, I think, perhaps the most appropriate response I could have, not just to this job, but I think it was the most appropriate response I could possibly have to the person of Jesus. I think that sense of inadequacy, I'm not enough, I don't measure up, I can't be good enough, I can't be perfect enough, I can't pray hard enough, I can't pray purely enough, I can't memorize enough scripture, I can't understand enough of the context, I can't give enough of my money away, I can't be loving enough, I can't be kind enough, I can't be gentle enough, I can't be whatever enough. Like I think that sense of I cannot do it is the ultimate place for me to finally say, Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I need Grace. Jesus, I need something that I don't deserve in this moment. I need to participate and partner with you in this thing that I don't merit, I don't earn, I don't deserve, I can't work hard enough, my zeal hasn't like prepared me for. Jesus, I am out of my depth. I just have need. Jesus, where are you? And I love those weeks of insecurity in the past, mostly because they've passed. But, but the reason that they've passed is because I think Jesus repeatedly over and over and over brought me to the end of myself in a way that made me deeply and desperately aware of my own need for grace and deeply and desperately aware of the abundance of actual, available, real grace from Jesus that isn't just a hypothetical, isn't just good theology, but is actually available to me and to you. More than just being available, it is the if and only if of our faith. Um, there's news this week, right? Lots of news. 
right? Even the conversations that I've had this morning. Hey, you used to live in Kiev. How are things there? Um, hey, I know you have very strong opinions on uh, the abortion ruling. I, and actually, we have people in the room kind of on uh, strong feelings uh, each way for, for a variety of reasons. No, nobody likes killing babies, right? Like, just, that's just not a thing. Um, but I've had conversations this morning about, hey, how's your IVF cycle going? Like, I like just, just all of the kind of craziness um, of life. And, and, and a bunch of these uh, craziness, whether it's the January 6th hearings or war in general, but particularly the one in Russia and Ukraine, or by Russia on Ukraine, you know what I mean, or abortion. We, we have so many of these shibboleth issues right now. And like, if, if you're... Uh, sadistic like I am, you're on Twitter, and what, what Twitter tells me every single day when I open it, like the first thing it tells me is, you are not a Christian unless you agree with me on this issue. Um, and, I, and I love it. I'm like, yes, Twitter, tell me how to be a Christian. Um, and like, obviously, I'm joking, um, or I'm really bad at telling stories and y'all are laughing at my pain. Um, But I think Twitter is really just a microcosm of something that most of us internally pretty much believe. They're like, I have to have a certain set of opinions, a certain set of convictions, a certain set of theological principles. Um, and if I don't have those, then I'm not Christian. Or maybe we soften it and we, we, we say it in a bunch of like basically equivalent ways. If I don't have those, then I can't like fully please Jesus. If I don't have those, then I couldn't be a lead pastor and preach. If I don't have those, like whatever our opinions are, we have all these shibboleths and we're like, well, if you don't agree with me on the overturning of Roe v. Wade, then you must not be a real Christian. And with all these shibboleths, really what I want to come back to this morning is say, what does it mean for me to be a Christian? What does it mean for you guys to be Christians? What does it mean for us to be Christian? Over the last several weeks, Brandon, our about-to-be lead pastor, uh, hopefully the members meeting goes well after this, um, uh, has, has started us in this, in this series on Acts as we talk about like Jesus' continuing work among us, within us, that, that we are only really a church insofar as Jesus is actively and really and presently at work within us, right? That, that's the message of Acts, and all I want to do this morning is say in my farewell sermon, hey, you need grace, actually, the only way for you to become a Christian is to be, become a recipient of grace. It's not your opinions. It's not your positions. It's not your zeal. It's not your intentions. It's not even your repentance. It's none of those things. The only thing that makes you Christian is grace. The if and only if, the foundation, the like wedge, the fork in the, in the road that makes you Christian or not Christian is no set of identity markers, no boundary markers, no anything, no actions, no nothing other than the grace of Jesus. Let me show you what I mean. Turn with me, Acts chapter 9. Um, we've been kind of in 8 and 9 a bunch in this series, kind of accidentally. We were going to do like a random sampling of Acts, and apparently we really like Acts 8 and 9. Um, so here's what's going on in Acts chapter 9. 
So we've seen like the early church with some of its beauty. They started sharing. There's no more poor people around them because they actually took Jesus' command to care for the poor seriously. And they started like selling their own stuff, take care of the people among them who were in need. And they really cared for each other in beautiful, sacrificial, Jesus-like and Jesus-commanded ways. As that community has grown, it's gone through a bunch of growing pains, and we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. One of those growing pains is one of its brand new leaders um, that's appointed to go and preach to the Gentiles. This guy named Stephen preaches this fiery sermon and is stoned to death for it. Well, from the people who are uh, like there, um, stoning, approving of the stoning, like giving official license, there is this guy Saul, and we pick up the story in 9-1. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. So the followers of Jesus, Saul's like, I'm breathing threats and murder. And he goes to the high priest, and he asks the high priest, verse 2, for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, right? So, so Saul is so murderous against the followers of Jesus that he is not content to kill the followers of Jesus in Jerusalem, right? There are thousands of Jesus followers, Christians. They weren't called that yet. They were called the way because there was something about like the ethics, the course of life, the, the path, the actual actions of the early church that distinguished it. And the way, there are thousands of them in Jerusalem. And Paul's like, I could arrest and kill all of them. Or actually, I could be even greedier and I could go beyond Jerusalem. And I could go up to other cities like Damascus. And I could arrest and murder Christians there too. So he goes and he gets um, letters to the synagogues at Damascus from the high priest so that if he found anyone who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, interesting side note, this men or women is actually really powerful. It, it seems like men or women. Yeah, of course. Like, what, what, what else are we talking about, men or women? Um, but, but what uh, Luke in the book of Acts here is doing is saying to us, the early Christian women were so important to the cause of Jesus. They were so active. They were doing so much teaching and preaching. They were like living in the cause of Jesus in ways that Saul and the other Jewish leadership were terrified of the Christian women. Saul and the other Jewish leadership wanted to kill not just the men, but also the women. The women were active combatants in this fracas. Although, of course, the Christians were turning the other cheek, were never responding with evil for evil or any such thing. But Saul, breathing uh, fiery threats, murder, gets an official permission slip to go to Damascus and kill people, which is like the weirdest permission slip ever. Like you would, you would expect like, hey, I'm gonna, like I gotta go to the bathroom during this period, like can I have a permission slip? Or, or I'm gonna, um, like I gotta go to the doctor and I need a day off. Like you get permission slips for all these things that like seem reasonable. Saul here is getting permission slips of, hey, I got so much murderous rage boiling up within me that the thousands of people here in Jerusalem cannot quench my rage. I need to also go to Damascus. We all tell the people, that are like the rulers of the synagogues there that that I have your thumbs up. It's just, it's the weirdest permission slip ever. Now, as he was going along the way and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he asked, "Uh, who are you? 
my Lord? Now, it says, who are you, Lord? And, and Saul eventually does come to understand that this is the Lord. But, but we've got a little bit of like um, fuzziness here because the word Lord was not so technical then as it is now, which is why I translated it as my Lord, because you could say that sort of thing without being a goober. Um, so Saul is asking, kind sir, like, who are you? And accidentally also calling the guy, Lord? In, in a way that is truer and more right than he has any idea in this moment. So Saul is headed to Damascus to kill the followers of Jesus. Suddenly bright light, he's blinded, he hears a voice. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Uh, who's talking? Who is that? Who, who, who am I persecuting? Like, who, who are you, Lord? The reply came, I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. Like, it's just a funny thing. Like, why are you persecuting me? He's like, who, who? I'm not persecuting anyone. Like he's persecuting multiple people. Like is, is, there, is there multiple choice on this? Like Saul's persecuting like half a dozen people and which one of the persecuted people is, is gonna like appear to me out of the heavens? Like he, he's gotta have a pretty good idea even before he gets the response to this question. Like who, my Lord? And he's, he's already gotta kind of know and yet he still needs the answer and Jesus says, uh, dummy, it's me that you're persecuting. But get up, enter the city, go on. You're headed to Damascus. Keep going, let's go. I'm gonna tell you there what you are to do. Verse seven, the men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice, but they didn't see anyone. So Saul got up from the ground and even though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and they brought him into Damascus. Now, you imagine having this permission slip on your person at this moment, right? Y'all ever have this crippling sense of insecurity like I do? Maybe not with people around you, but at least with like Jesus. You're like, if, if I have to stand in the presence of God, like what's he going to see on my person in this moment? I don't know about you guys, but I've never been caught by Jesus with a permission slip in my pocket to kill the followers of Jesus. Thank God, right? Take him by the hand, they bring him into Damascus, apparently with his permission slip, and for three days, he was without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. Okay, so there's more narrative here, but I want to um, actually uh, pause, and this is the end of the narrative that we'll read. I'll summarize, and then I'll show you what Paul thinks about this here in just a minute. Um, but let me ask you about your own insecurities. Right, you don't have to answer in front of everyone else like I do. That's why this job sucks. Um, <laughs> uh, okay, um, but like, Dude, just a minute. Like, if Jesus shows up today and says, you, what are you doing? You're like, ah, who are you? Jesus. Any of y'all got things you're embarrassed about? Any of y'all got things that you're like, I wish I could get that under control. I wish I could do that better. I wish I could like actually be as giving and self-sacrificial and loving and delighted and joyous and all that I think Jesus wants me to be. And apparently Jesus says we can be by his spirit, but like I'm not there yet. 
I'm a busy enough person that when I'm not forced to confront these kinds of things by, say, having to preach in front of people and then not wanting to be a hypocrite, it's, it's easy for me in my busyness to like not really think about these things because they're uncomfortable to think about. Um, can, I, can I encourage you that really my whole like prayer and hope and goal this morning is for you to be really uncomfortable. Really, like very sincerely, if you are not able to get yourself really uncomfortable this morning, then I don't think I can possibly do for you what you need to have done for you this morning. Okay, here's the thing. We can talk about grace all day long. We can talk about the goodness of Jesus, the kindness of Jesus, the forgiveness of Jesus, the mercy of Jesus, the grace of Jesus all day long until you are at a point in your life or in a moment in your life where you're like, oh my gosh, there is no excuse here. There is nothing left here. There is no like wiggling my way out of this. There is no good intention. There is no like I was basically right, Jesus. There, like, I, I got no more excuses until you're like finally caught out. You can't understand what it means for Jesus to have grace for you. Until you're finally willing to say, I got this permission slip in my pocket, Jesus, and I was trying to destroy all of your work. Like most of us wanted to destroy that permission slip. Decide, yeah, grace is awesome. I love grace. Yay, grace. Yay, Jesus. Jesus, I was on your side the whole time. What you talking about? The, the problem with this, and right, y'all, y'all have done this? I've, I've done something like this. The, the problem with doing things this way is, is we go around grace. And by going around grace, we never actually receive grace. We never like get it down deep into our souls that in the worst moments of our life, if we get caught out by Jesus and he says, hey, what you doing? And we're finally like caught in blinding light. There's no hiding. There's no crawling under rocks. There's no pretending There's no tricking, it's the eyes of Jesus and they see you until that moment when you're completely seen and maybe completely judged, you cannot possibly have any idea what it means for Jesus to have grace for you. You see, I wonder what these three days were like for Saul. Right, he's caught out on the road to Damascus, permission slip, blinding light. Suddenly he's blind. Jesus like, boys, take him to Damascus. He can't see anymore. And he's like there and he's not eating or drinking. He's like lost all of his appetite. He's probably terrified. Oh my word, Jesus is real. Jesus is right. I've been killing all of his people. And now I'm just waiting with his people, the ones I came here to kill. In kind of the same moment, Jesus goes to this guy named Ananias. He's like, Ananias, I'm going to tell you something crazy to do. I'm going to tell you to go to the street, um, or I'm going to go tell you to meet this guy. His name's Saul. Um, He's coming to Damascus. Don't ask why. Um, And I want you to heal him, and I want you to tell him how much grace I have for him 
And I also want you to tell him how much suffering he has to do for me. Um, Ananias is like, wait, the, the, the famous Saul? Like the Saul that I've heard that was coming to Damascus, the one with the permission slip in his pocket to kill all of us Christians? Like, Jesus, you know what this dude's up to, right? Jesus goes to Ananias and he says, Ananias, trust me, I know what I'm doing. I'm going to choose him and make him my special instrument to take my gospel to all the pagan peoples of the world. And Ananias, to his great credit, is like, all right, let's do this. And he goes and he like takes Saul and Saul, this blind dude shows up and he's not eating or drinking. He's like, I've been caught out by Jesus. And Ananias finally tells him the message of Jesus, tells him a little bit about Jesus and prays for him. His eyes are open. All of a sudden he can see and Saul gets baptized. And all of a sudden Saul goes around the whole Mediterranean basin, like the, the world, um, preaching the grace of Jesus and the goodness of Jesus in the name of Jesus. And everywhere he shows up, they're like, you're coming to kill us, right? You're just pretending. And Saul's like, no, I was, but then I met Jesus. And apparently he's like a pretty cool guy. <laughs> apparently he has grace even for the very worst things you could possibly do. And Saul starts telling everyone ab about this. So, so I wonder in these three days, like what's Saul thinking? Before he kind of knows, before he's baptized, before his sight comes back and Ananias is like, well, Jesus told me to tell you that he has a special purpose for you because you're going to suffer for him a whole lot. Which, which is the words of Acts 9. You, you can go and read. Like if Jesus told you that, hey, I'm here. I've caught you. Here comes a whole bunch of suffering. You're like, oh no, oh no, oh no. Justice is finally here. Vengeance is finally here. The holiness of God is finally here and I am about to be burned up. But something happens for Saul. So let, let, me, let me read you, I'm gonna read you a long chunk from Philippians. I'm not gonna put it up on the screen because I need to move too fast, but I'm, I'm reading from Philippians chapter three, starting in verse two, because what I want you to hear from Saul's own lips is the way that he thought about this moment, right? So he has this moment, road to Damascus, blinded, eventually scales fall off, he gets baptized. I want you to hear from his lips. He talks about this five times in the scriptures, Acts 22, Acts 26, Galatians 1, 1 Timothy 1, but here's, uh, at least this morning, my favorite, Philippians 3. Paul says, watch out for the dogs. Watch out for evil workers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. You're like, okay, so there's people cutting off pieces of themselves and like something, all right, I'll watch out for them. For it is we who are the true circumcision. Oh, that's what you meant by mutilating the flesh? Like following Old Testament law? who worship in the spirit of God and boast in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in our flesh. Watch out for the ones who mutilate the flesh because we are really true Christians because we have the spirit, not because we've done anything in our flesh. We have the spirit of Jesus, nothing in our flesh, even our religion. Even though I too have reason for confidence in my flesh. If anyone has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. You ever thought you were a good person? 
You ever thought you had it under control? Ever thought that like if somebody should do it, it should be you because you could do it better than them? Like that's me. If anyone has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day, just like the rabbis teach us, just like the Old Testament says. I'm a member of the people of Israel. More than that, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew born of Hebrews. As to the Old Testament law, I'm of the strictest sect of the Pharisees. As to zeal, I am a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, I am blameless. Yahweh himself shows up. I have bona fide credentials. You understand, as Saul is headed to Damascus before he meets Jesus, before he has this big change of heart, like, he's not irreligious. He's not pagan. He's not somebody that, that hates the Old Testament. He's not somebody that curses the name of Yahweh. He is somebody that is absolutely sincere in his religion, trying to serve his religion, trying to enforce his religion, trying to purify his religion. He has utmost perfect zeal. I don't know where y'all need grace. Where like I'm, I'm like, hey, if Jesus called you out for something and you weren't enough, like you couldn't do it well enough, you didn't have it managed well enough, there's something that you're like shameful or whatever about. Like sometimes we have those big things and we're like, well, I got this like giant thing that's really bad and I don't want Jesus to call me out on that. Some, sometimes in life, we figure out how to manage some of those giant things and like the things get smaller. We're like, well, I'm not like doing that anymore, but I still got these little things. And then we realize, well, the little things are kind of big and we start, we start like caring about them a lot. And then the little things, like we, we finally get those under control too. And like the thing that we're left with is I am zealous. Like I am extreme. I am really intense about my Christianity. Like I sing worship songs with reckless abandon. I show up on Sunday morning and I sing my heart out. Jesus wants to show up and ask me about my religion. I got zeal, baby, zeal for days. You see, I think there's this like spectrum of we've got mess of life and if Jesus shows up, we'd be really ashamed of it. And we have a little bit less mass, and we're like, well, I'd be ashamed of a little bit. But then some of us eventually figure out how to get most of the things in our lives relatively well controlled. Because we have the right disposition, we have the right setting, we have the, like, the right comforts in life, where we're like, I got all the stuff relatively well managed and under control. Except, by the way, like we never get all the money stuff right, especially in 21st century America. Like if we're being really honest and we actually look at what the, what the law commands and demands of us, like we got, we got less than everything under control. But eventually we get ourselves deluded enough that we're like religious enough, zealous enough, intense enough. So we're like, well, I got everything managed and I got my zeal. If Jesus shows up, I got nothing to be ashamed of because I have more zeal than anyone. That's the mindset that Saul has on the road to Damascus when he meets Jesus and Jesus says, yeah, everything that you think is my way, is my religion, is my beauty, is my love, is my truth, is my scriptures, is my Old Testament, all of it's absolutely wrong. It's that moment that you need 
that I need, that Saul needed, and I'm about to show you how central this was to his life and to his understanding of who Jesus was. Where he said, I had all the reasons for confidence in the flesh as to righteousness under the law as I was blameless, as to zeal. I was a persecutor of the church. But whatever gains I had, I've come to regard these as loss because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. I regard them as shite. Can I say that? Right, I'm I'm not trying to curse here, but Paul curses here. Like he's saying, this is dung, it is excrement. Like I used to think all of those things were my gold medals. All my religion, it like grosses me out. Please don't touch my underwear. Excrement. I regard all of these things as excrement. My religious zeal, my righteousness according to the scriptures. My pursuit of Yahweh, all of it, excrement. Because none of that is knowing Jesus. None of that is encountering Jesus. None of that is being grabbed by Jesus. None of that is grace. I want to gain Christ, be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. I want to have righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to share in his sufferings by becoming like him in his death if somehow I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Now, I've obtained none of this. I have not reached my goal, but I am pressing on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. I am trying now to seize all of my Christianity precisely because Jesus Christ has seized me for himself. I haven't done away with zeal, but I realize the zeal is no substitute for being grabbed by Jesus. I haven't done away with my righteousness. I just realize that my righteousness is no substitute for being grabbed by Jesus. Now I want Jesus. I want to know him. I want to be filled by him. I want everything in my life to be devoted to him. I realize everything else in my religiosity is nothing. It's excrement in comparison with being grabbed by Jesus. I will do everything in my power to seize these things precisely because Jesus has already seized me for himself. This is grace, right? If, if we define grace, we can say grace is unmerited favor. That's, that's a fine definition. What we really mean by that because that sounds a little Christianese and it sounds a little too trite and a little too clean. What it means is God gives us better than we deserve. In fact, he gives us good things even when we actively deserve bad things. Isn't that what happened to, to, to Paul? Saul, right? Saul is Jewish name. Paul's is Roman name. We call him interchangeably both of them. Both of them. Saul is caught in the worst moment of his life trying to kill God. And what does God do when he shows up and catches him? 
hey, I got a special job for you. I want you to know me and be filled with me and participate in my life, in my power, in my resurrection. Yeah, that also means my death and my sufferings, but I promise you this is going to be a joyous and beautiful and wonderful thing. Do you want to be with me forever? I'm seizing you and I'm making you my own. Saul got better than he deserved. Right? It's not just that like, he got a B minus and Jesus gave him an A plus. Like, he deserved like a negative F. Like so much below zero that it was like a negative A plus maybe. I guess that'd be even worse. Um, anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, grace is getting good even when we actively deserve bad. That, that's half of the definition for grace, right? Half is better than we deserve. The other half of the definition of grace that you cannot forget is precisely based on the first half. It it, it entails the second half. It implies the second half, yet we often forget the second half, so I want to make it a little explicit. If God gives us things that we don't deserve, then we didn't start it. He did. We don't initiate it. He does. Right? Part of our misunderstanding of grace is we're like, well, I just got to get like, um, I got I to repent enough. I got to like have the right frame of mind. I got to at least have good intentions. Well, like I meant well. And if, and if I get called out and as long as I wasn't too wrong or like of really operating in bad faith, then God has enough grace for me and maybe I deserve to... A, B minus, but like he'll, he'll up me and to keep my scholarship, he'll really give me an A, right? Like, like whatever mechanics and math is going on in our head, we think God just gives us just a little bit better than we deserve as long as we deserve something kind of good. And, and we settle for that idea of grace when biblical grace is, no, God's going to give something when you have done zero and nothing and actually worse than nothing because you've done things to actively merit the opposite, to deserve and earn and ask for and beg for and try to get God to give you the opposite. And yet he still shows up and says, hey, you want me to give you the best thing in all of existence? The best present I could possibly give you. Like go and think, go spend a thousand years thinking and considering what is the best thing you could possibly receive from me. It's not mountains, it's not houses, it's not the power to make rainbows, it's not time travel, it's not a money tree, it's not any of these things. The best thing God could possibly give us in all of existence is God himself. And Paul says, I'm now running after all of these things to be known by Christ, to know him, to be filled with Christ, to be one with Christ, to share with one spirit in Christ, in the very weird language he uses in 1 Corinthians. To grasp all of these things precisely because I've finally come to understand that it's him who grasped me. It's him who grasped me. Grace is getting better than we deserve, and grace is getting better than we deserve, not because we started it, but because God started it. Paul completely reevaluates his whole history, right? He looks back on everything else in life, even the things he was trying to do well, his interpretation of the Bible. 
his religion, his obedience, his zeal, his prayer, his giving, his, his everything has to be entirely reevaluated in light of actually meeting Jesus. The same is true today. You cannot be a Christian just because you call yourself a Christian. You don't become a Christian because you've been baptized. You don't become a Christian because you confess the right creeds. You don't become a Christian because you have the right theology. You don't become a Christian because you think the right things or know the right things or even believe the right things, although belief is really important, but belief is a tool after the fact. You become a Christian if and only if Jesus shows up and seizes you and grasps you and says, you're mine forever. That's it. Now, this can sound disempowering a little bit, right? How do I know? What do I do? The, I don't know, nine and a half years, eight years, however you count. Because like there's that gestational period before we like really launched, and so sometimes we say we're an eight-year-old church, sometimes we say we're a nine and a half-year-old church. Depends what we're counting. In, in all these years, um, I've basically been focused on two things. One is grace. You're hearing a bunch of that this morning. The other is love. Um, you've heard a lot about this lately, mostly because people want to argue with me about what love is. Um, and like, fight me. Um, if I have no insecurity, <laughs> here, here, here's my lack of insecurity. Um, I've read all the old dead theologians that you have too, and I'm right on what love is. Um, uh, okay, that sounds, yeah, it sounds like what it is. Um, but, but here's the reason I'm so sure of that. Um, because the New Testament declares that God is love. It actually says wild things, like whoever loves has come to know him and has been fathered by him. Like, wait, what? Anyway, um, so, so it says that God is love. And Jesus, in John, like, picks up on this theme, and he says, hey, what I want you to do as my followers, as my disciples, my goal for every single one of you is I want you to make your home in my love. I want you to swim in the oceans of my love. I want you to know that I have delight and joy and affection and actual love for you. Not just sacrifice. I do have sacrifice. But if all I do is give away all I have, deliver my body to be over to be burned, I'm but a clanging gong and resounding cymbal. That's not love. God's love is more than just sacrifice. God's love is more than just commitment, although it also implies commitment. It's more than just steadfastness, although it is, of course, steadfast. God's love is delight and joy and enjoyment and happiness and actual love for you. Love is love, and this love that all of us know and start to participate in is the very heart of the being of God, and his desire is for you to know this and be filled with this in a mystical life of joyous communion, imbibing and being filled with his love. Make your home in his love. But before I preach a whole sermon on love, here, here's really where I'm going with this. All that we're doing here, all that we're ever doing is saying, love is really, really real. Let's live in it. 
And then grace is, wait, but I'm not perceiving God's love. I don't understand God's love. I don't feel God's love. I'm not quite sure how to get to God's love. Grace is the profound answer of how in the moments where we're like, I need to receive more of God's love. Grace is our way forward. Grace is our secret. Grace is our superpower. As we start to believe God's grace is actually free, it's actually better than we deserve, in spite of what we deserve, and initiated by him, then that gives us confidence and freedom to start operating according to the way of grace. Here's what it really means. It means that with 100% confidence that I'm not doing some sort of pastoral malpractice, I can invite you to stew on the worst of your insecurities, the ones that you're like terrified of actually acknowledging, the ones that you're like, nah, I can't do that. Jesus would just like light me up if you found that one out. I can invite you to stew on those, not in spite of God's love, but precisely as a way to get to God's love. Because I think so many of you are keeping yourselves from knowing and experiencing God's love because you won't actually open yourself up to the concept that maybe deep down you need grace. Not just you should like grace. Not just grace is better than the alternative, but grace is if and only if you need grace. There's, there's nothing else. All the rest of it is excrement. You need grace because without grace, you'll never get God's love. You'll never get that he actually delights in you. You'll never get that he actually has joy for you. You'll never get that he's never gonna get up, give up on you. You'll never get that even in your worst, if he shows up while you're marching to, to, to Damascus with death notice in your pockets, that he's not executing you on the spot. Instead, he's gonna look in your eyes and you're probably gonna be blinded for about three days and you're gonna have no appetite for about three days. But then at the end of the three days, when he says, now you're, you're my partner, you're gonna be united with me forever. I'm gonna be in you and you're gonna be in me and my good is your good. My future is your future. My thriving and flourishing is your thriving and flourishing. I'm yours and you're mine, whatever. Without getting to the place of grace, like you cannot understand how much God actually loves you. And yet if you find yourself in a place where you're like, I'm not sure if God really loves me, your secret, your duty, your opportunity, your invitation right now and throughout this week and for the whole rest of your life is to with courage and boldness and confidence Seek out the parts of your life that are not enough. Seek out the edges of your own zeal, the edges of your own goodness. Identify the places where you continue to constantly conspire with the dominion of death around us. Like the, 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 the present evil world that says we have to fight each other all the time that what I need to do is dominate you because you're gonna kill me. What I need to do is make sure I get mine before you get yours. Like all the competitiveness of our world, this stands in stark contrast 
to the actual way of Jesus, if, if we will find right, so some of us have like ob- obvious things, like confess and repent, bring those to Jesus and find his, find his grace. And some of us have like our zeal and we have these blind spots. Look for the blind spots in your confession, in your, com- in your repentance, in those deep moments of anxiety where you're like, but wait, I don't think I'm enough. I don't think I deserve to stand on this stage this week and preach. No, I don't. I don't have enough good theology to deserve to be up here. I don't have enough zeal to, to deserve to be up here. I don't have enough sincerity to deserve to be up here. I don't have enough purity to deserve to be up here. But what do I have? I have the fact that in my weak moments, in my dark moments, in my moments, when I am not enough, Jesus grabs me and says, you're mine. Bring those moments of anxiety, of weakness, of despair, of darkness, of need, bring them to Jesus and see that he's already reaching out to grasp you. Try to grasp him, of course, and then realize that it was never you doing the grasping. It was always him doing the grasping. Did you come up with the idea for this sermon? Did you come up with the idea for this scripture? Did you come up for the, with the idea of like people getting together and worshiping this God of grace? No, over and over and over, through our brothers and sisters, through the continuing work of his spirit, Jesus is continuing to grab you, to seize you, to make you his. Not because you're so good. Not because deep down you're a really good person just because he loves you and he's going to fix you even though you're caught up in this mess just like I am. This grace becomes our ethic. It becomes the reason we don't fight about stupid stuff. It becomes the way we forgive each other. It becomes the way we like do our, our like conflict management. This grace is actually the way that invites us into like this mystical life of, wait, maybe Jesus really does want to know me. Maybe he does want me to be aware of him. Maybe he does want to open my eyes. This grace invites us into humility because, wait, I literally have nothing else to prove. Like, I can just be broken sometimes. Not in celebration of my brokenness, but in just like humility. This grace is what brings us freedom. Like, I don't have to march according to some law or some interpretation of some law. Like, I just get to be accepted because God actually loves me. This grace actually changes our epistemology and our historiography, but I'm not going to go into that this morning. Can we pray? Will you work with all your courage together with me this week to ask Jesus, is there grace for me this morning? in my impurity, in my pretending, in my posturing, in my hypocrisy, in my selfishness, in my pain, in my lashing out, in my indifference and in my numbness. Is there grace for me? Jesus, I'm sure I have all sorts of wrong opinions. Is there grace for me? Jesus, I'm sure that I'm hard-hearted. Ah, that's, that's a cop-out. I know that I'm hard-hearted. 
I know some situations and some ways. Is there grace for me? Jesus, my prayer life isn't what I want it to be. Is there grace for me? Jesus, I feel like I'm supposed to love you more than anything else in this world, and I don't. Do you still love me? Is there grace for me? Jesus, would you, would you blind us and make us see all at the same time? Would you show up directly and actively and powerfully, just like you did for Saul? Jesus, I need that. I need a reorientation, a reevaluation of all my zeal, all my religiosity, all of my trying to get to you. Would you help me to see that you're the one coming after me? Would you hear us? Would you fill us? Would you be with us as we sing your praises? Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, get coffee with a pastor, or visit us on a Sunday, then go to redemptionhou.com. And please know today that you are fully loved and fully accepted just the way you are. We hope to hear from you soon.